It's my pleasure to welcome you to the September meeting of the Silicon Valley Speechwriters Roundtable with our guest this month, Hal Gordon. And Hal was a speechwriter for the Reagan White House and later wrote for General Colin Powell. And since 2005, at that point, of course, he lived in Washington, D.C., in that region. Uh, But he then moved to Houston, Texas, where he worked for uh, energy companies and has written for top executives of a whole range of uh, corporations, as well as delivered lectures on speech writing for NASA, Texas A&M University, and the National Association of Government Communicators, and conferences in uh, speechwriters conferences, and for the UK Speechwriters Guild. Um, He's uh, experienced then in both the political world, the Reagan White House, as well as uh, General Colin Powell, and the corporate world. And he has a website, www.ringingwords.com and he also blogs for Punditwire P-U-N-D-I-T-W-I-R-E.com and you can follow him on Twitter at, at PaidPen So it's my pleasure to welcome you Hal thanks for taking time out of your week and sitting down with the Silicon Valley speechwriters on this conference call and I'd like to start just by getting a little kind of historical viewpoint how long have you been involved in speechwriting and do you remember your first speech you ever wrote what what was involved with that how, how long have I been involved in speechwriting well too long okay over 30 years <laughs> okay uh, I guess you could say that I started at the top I was hired at the, hired by the Reagan White House to write issue papers on domestic policy. And then one fine day, Ed Meese needed a speech, and there was nobody around to write it. So it fell to me, and uh, Mr. Meese liked the speech. So when his regular speech writer, who happened to be a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian, went on to other things, I ended up writing speeches for Mr. Meese. And that was the start. Okay, so you didn't work your way up from any humble beginnings. You wrote for a national figure from the very beginning. Yes, well, I mean, my my experience in public speaking uh, uh, actually went went back quite a few years. I worked for a couple of business associations, and I was used to speaking to rotary clubs and high school students and things like that. So I had experience in speaking in public. Well, that's an interesting point. I was actually going to get onto that later, but since you raised it, as a speechwriter who also delivers speeches, do you think it's a, is it a good idea? What advantage, advantages do you see as a speechwriter having stood on the podium yourself? Well, first of all, I think that speechwriters should seize every opportunity to get out and speak themselves, to remind themselves what it's like to face an audience, and to remind themselves that writing for the ear is different than writing for the eye. One of the speeches you've recently delivered yourself which I think warrants going into in some depth here, is titled, you sent me a copy of it, and it looks like you delivered it in April at Westminster College at Cambridge University in England at the 10th right. European Speechwriters Networking Conference, at The Man Who Made Winston Churchill. Can you give us a little background to that? And, and was uh, I believe you're delivering this speech in a number of places, is that right? Well, actually, I'm going to be giving it in, to a group in Houston next week, and I'm going to be giving it at the uh, Professional Speechwriters Association at Georgetown University next month. Uh, well, th- this speech was actually a labor of love. I mean, I, um, 
back in the uh, the 1980s, I read an article by James Humes, who is a White House speechwriter, and he's done one-man uh, shows um, uh, imitating Winston Churchill. And he's a big Churchill, but he met Churchill once, and um, uh, he was a great Churchill fan. And he mentioned how Churchill had learned the secret, uh, had been coached in the art of public speaking by an Irish-American politician named William Burke Cochran. And I was intrigued, and uh, later on when I read Churchill's Thoughts and Adventures, there are a few paragraphs on his meeting with William Burke Cochran. And uh, <clears throat> more recently, a book came out uh, called Becoming Winston Churchill. And this was a detailed treatment of Churchill's relationship with Cochrane. Now, the story is surprisingly little known. And Cochrane, who was a uh, fascinating figure himself, is almost forgotten today. But what happened was this. Um, Cochrane had had an affair with Churchill's mother. When she was widowed. <laughs> when she was Sorry? widowed. When she was widowed. Yes. yes. Okay. Uh, Cochran visited Paris and he met this uh, beautiful English widow and they had a brief but uh, toward love affair and then shortly afterwards uh, Jenny wrote to uh, Cochran you know that, that her escapegrace son Winston was coming to America and um, he'd be stopping off in New York and uh, <clears throat> could he play host and she said I'm afraid Winston doesn't appreciate how expensive New York is and this was 1895 mm-hmm. <laughs> But anyway, um, uh, Churchill had just lost his father, <coughs> Lord Randolph, and Churchill had had very little contact with Lord Randolph, and Lord Randolph was very critical of him. Uh, he'd gotten very little support from his father, and um, Cochrane was 40 years old and a widower who always wanted a son. And here is the son of his beloved Jenny coming to New York. Mm-hmm. So he rolled out the red carpet for young Winston, <clears throat> uh, took him places, introduced him to important people, gave him, uh, took him to West Point, for example. Churchill had just graduated from Sandhurst. And Churchill wrote home these enthusiastic letters saying, I have the most marvelous conversations with Mr. Cockman. Uh, we talk about everything from economics to yacht racing. But it was, Cochran was known in his day as one of the he was considered the greatest order in the United States. Uh, he had an Irishman's get for gap. Uh, I'm informed by a friend of mine who's an authority on Mark Twain that on two occasions, uh, Cochran and Mark Twain shared the same platform. So he was a brilliant orator, and he was the one who coached Churchill in the art of rhetoric. Hmm. That's quite a story, and it's remarkably little known. And you do it more, you do it great justice in this speech you've written, which you've delivered, as you said, in Cambridge, as, and now plan to deliver elsewhere. Is um, what kind of reception did you get at the Speechwriters Guild in the UK when this was given? It was a very warm reception, and I, I had um, some doubts because I was talking about American politics. You know, nineteenth uh, century American politics were part of the speech, and. Uh, of course, a lot of the people there would not have been familiar with that, so I, I had to explain a bit. Uh, but the, the, one of the, uh, the main points in the speech was that um, Churchill wrote an unpublished essay called The Scaffolding of Rhetoric. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, let's see here. <clears throat> 
this, the, the speech was not, or sorry, the, the essay was not published during his lifetime. Right. And um, uh, it was published later, and he's, he begins the, uh, the essay, Of all the talents bestowed upon men, none is so precious as the gift of oratory. He who enjoys it wields a power more durable than that of a great king. He is an independent force in the world. Abandoned by his party, betrayed by his friends, stripped of his offices, whoever can command this power is still formidable. Now, we read that today, and we think immediately of Churchill himself. Mm. Churchill between the wars, when he was, uh, the so-called wilderness years, when he was out of office, shunned, belittled, widely regarded, is finished. Mm. And yet, by the sheer power of his rhetoric, he was able to awaken his countrymen from the Nazi menace and become prime minister. Yes, we think of Churchill, but who was Churchill thinking of when he wrote this in 1897? Well, the year before was one of the most fiercely uh, contested presidential elections in American history, one of the bitterest. Now, for for the people who are listening in on uh, on the phone, uh, you probably remember the uh, the big uh, the, the fight over the gold standard. The Republicans were for a gold standard and monetary stability. The Democrats Democrats wanted gold and silver, cheaper dollars, easy money, inflation. And that was the election where the Democrats nominated this little-known 37-year-old former congressman named William Jennings Bryan. Now, probably you remember the speech that Bryan made at the uh, Democratic convention that got him the nomination. It's the cause of gold speech. You shall not press down upon the brow of labor this crown of thorns. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. Now, Brian started a prairie fire. He had a good chance of being elected president and bringing in this um, gold and silver standard. Now, Cochran was a conservative Democrat. He was a Grover Cleveland-type Democrat. He believed in the gold standard because gold was honest money. And he, he saw that a gold and silver standard would benefit certain classes of people at the expense of others. He saw that it would hurt the working poor. Because with inflation, the price of everything would go up, but their wages would stay the same. So he was passionate about this. And even though he was a Democrat, he campaigned for the Republican candidate, William McKinley. He undertook a nationwide speaking tour at his own expense, so nobody could accuse him of being bought by the Republicans. And he was the only man in America who could out-talk uh, William Jennings Bryan. Hmm. And uh, McKinley was elected. At the time, Cochran was called the Warwick of the Democratic Party, after Warwick the, uh, Warwick the Kingmaker in medieval England. He was an independent force in the world by virtue of the power of his rhetoric. So there was Churchill's model. Which, again, your speech, and uh, I've read it, and it's very... You've touched on a couple of points, but it's filled with many points. One of the things I remember at the very beginning of the speech, you said you know, Churchill had a kind of a spotty education, for all we know, yes. he, you know, he would have been diagnosed with ADD today or something and put on Ritalin. But in those days, he was just, uh, you know, that's the reason he said, I remember, that he classical education in those days, you would have studied Greek and Latin, but he was considered too dumb for that. So he studied the English language, which, of course, paid off. And, but he also, I, I see in your speech... Well, he, as a matter of fact, I think it is at his first boarding school, he had to learn Latin. And... Um, the story, as I remember, was that the master told him he had to decline mensa, which meant O table. Yeah. He would use it when addressing a table. And Churchill said, but sir, I never do. 
Yeah, I never talked to tables. But you do say that he memorized and recited 1,200 lines of, um, S, of Macaulay's Lays of Ancient Rome, and which kind of reminded me of when you were memor- you've obviously memorized uh, Othello from, well, I know, other areas of Shakespeare. And it would seem that the... And, of course, the, one of the obvious things, if people aren't aware of it, is that Churchill did not employ a speechwriter. <laughs> he, he famously That's wrote... That's right. He wrote many of his speeches while having his morning bath. He wrote all of them. Yes, in, but in the bath, some of them were written, apparently. And, by the way, you mentioned James Humes, and I was most uh, honored to... Uh, up in Seattle, a friend of mine was running a legal education seminar and had James Humes come along to talk about speechwriting and he came in dressed in his broad pinstripe suit looking uncannily like Winston Churchill and Abel of course to as an American did a very good job of imitating Churchill and using a cigar as a prop using a cigar as a prop and I have to share this one rather surreal moment in in the Seattle area uh, a good friend of James Humes who'd been in the Nixon White House was uh, Richard Nixon's, I believe it was his older brother. I've forgotten the fellow's first name. But he bared a remarkable resemblance to his brother, Richard Nixon. And in the evening for the cocktail reception, he came to visit and meet with James Hume. And I happened to be sitting at a table looking across at what, for all intents and purposes, looked like Churchill and Nixon talking to each other. So it was a quite an amusing moment. But... Um, I think it's, uh, it, it would be useful though to talk a little more, uh, and, and this speech you've written is wonderful on Churchill, but let, let's hear something though about your own experience as a speechwriter in the White House and, and with Colin Powell maybe especially. What kind of war stories can you share about those, those days and the speeches you've written? Well, on, on some rare occasions I was asked to write for President Reagan and Vice President Bush. Uh, but mostly my work was for uh, the president's aides, um, in particular Ed Meese, who was counselor of the president, and uh, Jim Miller, who was an economist and was uh, the budget director. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I, I enjoyed writing for both of them because they both liked using humor. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, I, I, I mentioned how I happened to write the uh, first speech for uh, uh, Ed Meese, and I think the reason he kept coming back to me was that he liked my jokes. And uh, one time, uh, he was giving a speech to the Federal Emergency Management Administration, and the subject of the speech was international terrorism. And I swear, he turned to me and he said, Hal, can you work a little humor into it? And so I said, well, it's a difficult subject for humor, Mr. Neese, but I'll do the best I can. So I got back to my office, and I immediately called a friend of mine from Capitol Hill. I, I worked in the Senate before I worked in the White House. And this guy named Joel Lister was an ex-FBI agent. And so I said, Joel, quick, tell me again that story about the Albanian secret agent. And this is a true story. Mm-hmm. Albania decided to send a spy to the United States at a time when Albania, this was in the, the Cold War in the 1960s, um, Albania didn't have relations with the United States, but uh, the Yugoslav embassy agreed to provide diplomatic cover and attach that person to their embassy. And then the comedy began. They didn't have a single um, a person uh, who could speak English. They picked a cobbler, and uh, but he was a good party member, and that's all that counted. And so this guy uh, was 
had an addition problem because there was no Albanian English dictionary. <laughs> but there was, however, a, um, an Albanian Yugoslav dictionary and a Yugoslav English dictionary. So when Albania's James Bond arrived in the United States, the FBI quickly spotted him as the little man with two large dictionaries, one under each arm, trying to translate the name of Barfinkel's department store. <clears throat> and, of course, the, the, uh, the uh, punchline of the story was, if only all those who wished to harm were so comically inept. But they're not. And then he got down to the meat of the speech. So that was included in Ed Mises' uh, remarks. I'm sorry? You included that in Ed Mises' speech. That's, yeah. That story. Yeah. 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 And, and, and what, any, any other examples of speeches from that era? You said you wrote for, right. you wrote for the president once or twice. What, what kind of remarks did you write for him, for President Reagan? Uh, well, I was called in because he wanted to thank the, uh, uh, the budget, uh, uh, the Office of Management and Budget. Uh, that, that meant the careerists as well as the political appointees for their work on the budget. Mm-hmm. And so, naturally, they asked somebody in the budget office to do the first draft of the president's remarks. Okay. What Were you ever involved with these um, high-level um, White House executives-level people? What kind of... Um, revision cycles and I've heard in I've read in a couple of books about uh, you know the White House Ghosts book by Schlesinger where he talks about the challenges of some speechwriters in different administrations because it's often the uh, the bureaucrats and the you know the career um, departmental people take your words and tear the soul out of them and give it to the president and it's not anything like you wrote what did you have any experiences like that well, fortunately, I worked one-on-one with Mr. Meese and with Jim Miller, and um, uh, if the speech, you know, a speech like um, uh, something like National Defense would be vetted by experts, and anything I wrote for the budget director would be vetted by the uh, career, by the number crunchers in the department. But uh, actually, more often, I would go to them first for the uh, for the uh, data, and so the data would already be approved. And Jim Miller was a very independent guy who, uh, uh, you know, said, yeah, I'll say what I like. And uh, so really, um, uh, he did his own vetting. I mean, if he didn't like something that was out or if he wanted something rewritten uh, and so on and so on. But that's, that's the way it went. Uh, Jim, again, was a person who liked using humor, and uh, he was flamboyant. Um, one time, I remember, he was giving a speech on St. Patrick's Day. And the speech was all about <clears throat> taxing and spending. But it was St. Patrick's Day, so you had to have an Irish story. Fortunately, I knew an Irish story appropriate to the occasion. Uh, I, incl- I put this at the beginning of the speech about um, Jonathan Swift, who wrote Gulliver's Travels, was also known for his defense of the Irish people at a time when they were being harshly ruled by England. One time, uh, Swift was introduced to the wife of the English Viceroy who had just arrived from London, and she remarked about how fresh and pure the air of Ireland was. And Swift feigned alarm and exclaimed, For God's sake, madam, don't say so in London. They will tax it. <laughs> and from there, well, that was a springboard to talk about taxing and spending. Yeah, yeah. And how the Democrats wanted to, you know, wanted to raise taxes. Yeah, 
Did you have any interaction with any of the, uh, and I'm betraying my ignorance here, I don't know who were the well-known Reagan speechwriters, but the senior speechwriting team for the Reagan... Well, you're thinking, you're thinking of Peggy Nelnan oh, yeah. and uh, Peter Robinson and uh, Tony Dolan. Uh, oh, and, and Dana Rohrbacher. Uh, I I had conversations with Dana Rohrbacher and Tony Dolan, but not with Peter Robinson and uh, Peggy Newman. Okay. okay. But as I've heard, though, it, it's true, I suppose, what we see on the West Wing, right, the TV show. It's, it is a pressure cooker where people are on call 7 by 24. If the situation yeah. requires a speech from the president, you can't go home to your family or your claim that your uh, your eight hours that day is up, right? It is long hours, and um, uh, yeah, you are always on call. Yeah. So, contrasting that with your experience in corporate America, would you, what observations have you got about you know the art and science of speech writing in the corporate world? Maybe not just how it differs from the political world, but uh, any general guidance you can share with people that you've picked up over the years there? Well, I'm often asked about the difference uh, between uh, uh, writing in the political world and writing in the corporate world. Uh, It boils down to this. In the political world, you're trying to sell policies. In the corporate world, you're trying to sell widgets. Now, in politics, you want to accentuate differences between people and differences between policies. You're, you're, in politics, you're really trying to rally the troops and challenge your opponents. In the corporate world, you don't want to offend anybody. You want everybody to buy your widgets. The only time you accentuate the differences is when you're talking about rival widget makers and why your widgets are better than their widgets. Yeah. So that's essentially the difference. So, I don't know if we want to get into this. I I would say uh, you have veto power here if you think this is a good question to ask at this point in uh, this month and this year. But given the current uh, debates we've seen most recently last night between the political, uh, in the political arena between the contenders for the Republican nomination, uh, we're sort of a little off topic here. But as obviously you have Republican sympathies having worked for the Reagan White House. Any observations just in general about this is purely me being curious about what somebody with your experience would make of the current candidates and what maybe you saw last night? <laughs> well, I, you know, in terms of just as public speaking and uh, just in terms of public speaking, uh, they were all good. Some were better than others. I thought that Jeb Bush was particularly good. I thought that uh, Marco Rubio and, Rubio and Carly Fiorina were particularly good. Uh, Christie was good. Uh, I mean, in, in the sense that they were strong, resident, they made resident, they made good uh, presentations. <laughs> if anybody's curious, uh, you can go to www.punditwire.com and. Uh, Scroll back a bit and read my parody of a Donald Trump speech. Uh-huh. Yeah, Donald Trump, is, um, it was announced recently that Donald Trump will be meeting with a group of evangelicals on September 28th. And so I began my uh, parody by saying, just when I thought that Donald Trump was beyond parody, it was announced that he was going to speak to a group of evangelicals. And so I gave my version of what a Donald Trump speech 
to a group of evangelicals would sound like. That sounds like it's worth reading. <laughs> so, and, and I suppose it's true to say that possibly the only thing Donald Trump and Winston Churchill share in common is neither employs a speechwriter. Uh, well, I guess you could say that, yeah, that's true. Donald Trump, uh, interestingly enough, fired his polit- chief political consultant, uh, Roger Stone, early in the campaign. So, uh, I don't know who's Rory. He does have a campaign manager, but he's he's been really um, winging it, and it's going to be interesting to see whether he continues to do that. There was just an article in the New York Times about whether he's going to acquire a full-fledged um, staff now that he's um, uh, uh, he's doing so well in the polls. Right, right. But it, I mean, I said that rather tongue-in-cheek because, as you've demonstrated, as anybody who's studied Churchill knows and has read about his life, he use rhetoric as you said I mean he defeated he rose to power again in the 40s and became prime minister and you know no exaggeration sort of saved the western world with a power of rhetoric it, it helping him tremendously and and put a long long hours of rehearsal and memorization and his whole life beginning with maybe that con- that influential meeting with William Bort Cochrane led up to it, whereas one assumes that Donald Trump has very little formal memorization going on about what's going to come out of his mouth next. He he kind of wings it, as you say. Well, actually, Donald Trump reminds me of the story of the old colored preacher who always preached spontaneously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he used to say, if you write down your sermons in advance, the devil know what you're going to say and he can forestall you. But if you preach spontaneously, you don't know what's going to come out of your mouth. Okay. Okay. Well, that's... Uh, I, I, I think there's a, a... Obviously, for somebody like yourself, if Donald Trump continues on the ascendant then, or become, stays in the public eye to the level he is, you could write many more either parodies or comments on the rhetoric of a, a character like that. Um, I'd like to ask you, we've talked a lot about your experience in the world of politics, experience in corporate world. Um, you've also, I presume, made the shift maybe more than once from a salaried speech writing job to freelance. Is it correct to say now you're doing freelance work? Yes. So I'm curious because I've, I've done freelance work as well as worked for the paycheck, the W-2 versus the 1099, as I like to say. Um, what's your um, uh, what's your personal experience of freelance writing, uh, being a freelancer? Do you enjoy that more than being in the corporate or political world as a full-time employee? Uh, well, it's, um, you know, as long as the work comes in, it's better than, I, I'd say it's better than a corporate job, but um, uh, because you've got a lot more freedom and you don't have to, uh, you don't have to conform to a corporate bureaucracy. But, uh, I mean, I mean corporate, well, it really depends on how much you love your job. I mean, uh, if you write for, if you write for somebody you like and admire, uh, you can enjoy a corporate job. But the problem in a corporate job very often is corporate bureaucracy. Sometimes there's somebody between you and the, um, uh, and the person you're writing for. Exactly. And that can be different. And do you, do you find in, co- in the freelance jobs you sometimes, though, are, do, you, do you insist as part of your terms of engagement that you have free access to the principal? 
I don't have that kind of power. Right. Uh, as a freelancer. Here's what I do as a freelancer. Uh, if I can't interview the CEO in person, uh, I'll ask, well, is there a, um, is there a videotape of the CEO giving a speech? If they don't have that, I said, is there a text of the CEO giving a speech? If they don't have that, I'll say, well, is there somebody, uh, uh, close to the CEO who knows his style whom I could talk to? Right. And, and how, so how do you, I mean, if, I don't want to, you know, sort of tread on areas you may not want to discuss in public, but how do you find your work? Is it by referrals? Do you find your website brings in clients? A lot of it, a lot of it comes from my website. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Not so much from referrals, because I, some freelancers well, say... It comes, it, it comes from referrals, it also comes from the website. Okay. And are you able to, uh, sort of, do people sometimes ring up expecting they're going to get one of these, like, $10 wedding speeches, or do they have realistic expectations about the cost of a speechwriter? You know, as we all know, it's sort of one of the rules of time, it takes an hour for each minute of a speech, so a 20-minute speech might take you 20 hours to write. Is that something you explain to clients, or do they generally, do you find people understand that before they call you? Well, maybe I shouldn't say this in public. Well, don't, if you don't. Uh, no, I don't, I, I don't mind. Uh, at, at this stage in my life, I've, I've got, uh, I'm, I'm sort of, uh, I'm effectively semi-retired. I don't need to work. I work because I like working, and occasionally, um, Occasionally, I'll get a call from somebody who needs a speech, but there's somebody who doesn't have a big budget. Uh, okay. I got a call from a woman who um, was in charge of a charity that provides um, school clothes for poor children. And so I said, well, look, I'll do this pro bono. And I wrote her a very nice speech, and I said that... Uh, uh, you're in touch with a lot of important people. Uh, if you could just, uh, uh, if you're ever asked about who wrote your speech or who could you, uh, or could you recommend a speech you're either, just please mention my name. So I'll, I'll do that. Yep. Yep. Great. Well, we've but been... I, no, I, I, actually, I actually enjoyed writing the speech because it was a worthy cause. And uh, the, keynote, the keynote of the speech was that... Uh, uh, there's a question in the, in, the, uh, in the second book of Kings that in a way is a, a litmus test for our society. The question is, is it well with the child? We did skip over, and I remember at the Reagan conference, I think, or it could have been at David Murray's conference, you had quite a good story, and I really have forgotten the details, but it was about when you either auditioned to or you first wrote for Colin Powell. Was there some story? Oh, yes. First day on the job. Can you share that? That's one, that's one of my favorite stories about uh, Colin Powell. First day working for the general, I mean, I was terrified, but he was very gracious. And first thing he said to me was, thank you for coming on board to help us. Second thing he said was, you know, I wouldn't want to be a speechwriter for me because I take what I want from the draft and I throw the rest away. Now, he was letting me know right up front what being his speechwriter was going to be like, and he was as good as his word. But unfortunately, I had the presence of mind to say, uh, well, General, I've been doing this for over 15 years, and I operate on the guiding principle of it's your speech. 
and he laughed. He cocked a finger at my in my direction, and he said, "You and I are going to get along just fine." Yes, and we did. That's that's very good advice. I think. I mean, all speechwriters know that, but to be able to, we've all been well, in the position. The problem is the problem is Ian. They don't know it. I remember a Reagan conference when, where one neophyte speechwriter asked rather petulantly, "When does it stop being your speech?" To which I said, when is it ever your speech? Mm-hmm. It's always the client's speech. You're, you know, you, you're consciously subordinating your own style and personality to the person you're writing for. Exactly. Exactly. I forget the gentleman's name, but at the last Reagan conference, I wasn't there, but David Murray alerted me, and I did carry it in my blog, uh, a reprint of the speech by the um, PepsiCo uh, speechwriter who wrote, you know, he kind of came up from pretty humble backgrounds to fly in the corporate jet, and he has a lot of observations about the the ego, the demands on your ego, the demands on your ego in the sense you have to sublimate your ego to the speaker to the speakers, and that's one of the challenges of the role, I think, for some people. Right. Well, I mean, uh, I suppose I've got as much ego as any ordinary person, but I mean, when I was writing for the most admired man in America, I just blessed my lucky stars that I was there, and I had no problem being humble. But when the general went to the State Department to become Secretary of State, he asked a Reagan speechwriter named Tony Dolan to become his speechwriter at the State Department because Tony Dolan had done a lot of Reagan's foreign policy speeches. I think he's the one who invented the phrase evil empire. Mm-hmm. But anyway, Tony Dolan, before he became a speechwriter, was a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. So he had an ego of his own. And so when I heard about this, I thought, well, let's see how long this arrangement lasts. And sure enough, inside of six months, Tony Dolan left the State Department to go to the Defense Department and write for Donald Rumsfeld. What's, what sort of advice would you share for somebody who wants to become a better speechwriter? You've already mentioned well, speak yourself, be a, become conversant with standing on the stage. Yes, well, and I've also already mentioned uh, never forget it's the client's speech. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need to be a generalist. You need to be a wide reader. Uh, I would say uh, one thing to do is always be collecting material. Uh, I've got, you know, um, I use Evernote, I, uh, I use other electronic filing systems, but I'm always collecting quotes, stories that I can use, and um, uh, because you never, you, you find something you think you might be able to use in a future speech, uh, add it to your file. Now, for example, a few years ago I was in the British Museum, and I saw a painted shield from the early 1400s. The shield showed a knight kneeling before a beautiful lady in a Flemish gown, and behind the knight was a skeleton who symbolized death. And uh, over the knight was a scroll with an inscription in Old French that translated, You or death, meaning that the gallant knight would face death rather than do anything that would dishonor himself in the eyes of his lady. Well, lo and behold, a few months ago, <clears throat> Uh, a client called me up and said, uh, my daughter's getting married, and I have to give a father to bride toast. And so I wrote him I wrote him the toast, and when it came to the groom, 
The groom was an ex-Navy SEAL who had lost a lung in the service of his country. And I used that story about the shield. That is the kind of man my daughter married, and I'm proud to have him as a son-in-law. And that went over very well. 